The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from 1 Kings 18, verses 41 through 46. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And when he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud, like a man's hand, is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, John. Well, happy Father's Day to you. Uh, my name is Stacy Croft. If I haven't uh, met you, I'm uh, the pastor here, Christ Pres Music Row, and would love to get to know you at some point. And again, happy Father's Day to you, whether you are a father or you have uh, actually probably been a father to someone. Um, I was just even emailing this week with an old coach of mine uh, from high school who uh, was such a father figure to me uh, in a million ways, especially at a time in my life when I was going through hard things in my own family. But uh, just seeing his face and uh, emailing with him back and forth was just, just brought such joy to my soul. So happy Father's Day to you watching online and here in person. Uh, and there's also not anything more gut-wrenching uh, to me as a father when um, I'm playing with my kids <laughs> and um, and then I go away for a little bit and I come back and they're sad and they say, um, and I'm like, what, what's going on? And, and they're like, you told me you'd do this. You told me you'd play with me and, and play this game. And not, this, not the one that I was playing with them before or talking with them before, but somehow I've gotten distracted or I'm doing something else or I've promised. And, and the thing isn't just one thing. It's that I've promised them that I would play with them this specific game or whatever it is, and they've kept that in their memory, and I've totally missed it. And then I'm like, oh, you know, I did tell you that I would do that, and I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, lately in the news and things, uh, the, the idea of prayer has come up a lot specifically, and it's not just in the recent difficult tragedies that have been happening in our country, but prayer has come up a lot uh, in the last number of years. And what has come up with it often with uh, newspapers and uh, pundits on screen is to say, there are a lot of these, these comments about, yeah, I'm praying for you, but there's not a whole lot of backup to it. As if to say, thoughts and prayers go with you, but where's the action? It's actually a good question. In our vernacular, we're sitting in a church, and maybe you're new here. Uh, maybe you're new to a church even. Maybe church and Christianity is new to you, uh, and welcome to that this morning. I, maybe you've heard that phrase, prayer is something that's thrown out there. And oftentimes, I think in our circles, uh, the, the phrase of thoughts and prayers, or I'm praying for you, or a text of that, 
can mean well wishes, but does it really mean there's action behind it? Does it really mean that we're following up? Or is it just one of those things we just kind of say because we happen to be Christians or religious or any of those kind of things? This passage takes that very seriously. This passage actually follows one uh, where Elijah, as we're looking at the life of Elijah, a prophet in the Old Testament. Last week, previously to this very passage, Elijah just had a huge contest with the prophets of Baal, the prophets of this uh, lower G God that was in the land. And it was Elijah and the Lord versus the prophets of Baal and Baal. And who was going to win? And essentially what happens is the Lord wins. He sends fire down upon this altar, consumes everything upon it. And it shows God is the one who is the God of heaven and earth who hears. But the real issue comes after that. So that's amazing narrative. It's an incredible account of God's power and strength. But actually where the story crescendos isn't God sending fire down and consuming, it's actually the fact that there's still a two and a half year drought going on in the land and they need rain. And it crescendos with Elijah in prayer for rain. In prayer, the thing that we kind of think, okay, We love the story of God sending, you know, he's going to take everything up. But what about Elijah praying? You know, as we've looked at the life of Elijah, prayer and the prophets really hang together quite a bit. And especially in his life. I mentioned it actually when we started this series several weeks ago that you would see scattered throughout his life the way that he just talks to God. And I really want us to see this morning, how does it drive us not just to think of prayer as something, a a catchphrase, and not just something that we kind of do, but that we actually engage in it and it drives us to live in relationship to the Lord and others. So we're going to look at Elijah's uh, prayer here in a sense and and parts of it and what it affects in two ways. We're going to look at how prayer is personal to Elijah and how prayer is practical to Elijah. That's personal and it's very practical. You know, I was at a party um, just for a book release just a few uh, days ago. Actually, it was really fun, interesting, cool kind of thing. Don't get to be a part of those kind of things much. And there are a lot of people in the room that I saw and we really respect. Megan and I were there and able to kind of see some people and And a lot of people were really well known in their fields and, you know, be it writing or therapy or those kind of things. And a few of these people came up to us and we were just seeing them, you know, knowing them and how they are in Nashville, particularly and even beyond. And what was so uh, humbling and powerful was when a few of the people that I know we both respected came up to us afterwards and saw us and gave us hugs. And we didn't even know they really knew us and said, oh, it's so good to see you and meet you. We so appreciate you. And, and, and to talk about us as if they knew us. And I don't know if you ever had that moment before where you, you've had that. Uh, it's almost like you're supposed to know somebody but they, and, and you really, that you really respect and yet they see you just as a person. And it wasn't just so much that this person's famous. They weren't, it's not like they're famous per se. It's just that they're so respected and they see you and they just acknowledge you. You're known to them as a person, as somebody valuable. You know, when you enter into praying here in Elijah's prayer, this is what 
Elijah gives us. He gives us an understanding that when he's speaking to God, God knows him. And he speaks to God on this level of real deep knowledge that there's this great respect and yet he, do, he knows that God knows him. C.S. Lewis talked about this a little bit when he talked about prayer. He said what's incredible about prayer is that we're actually known by God. We're not just seen as little creatures like a lizard or um, <clears throat> a vegetable growing in a garden. God actually knows us. And that can be really humbling and powerful actually in the way that we pray. And you see that with Elijah. When the prophets and Elijah pray, it, they, they recognize that God knows them so profoundly. And it's a deeply personal relationship and conversation that ensues. And from the point of <clears throat> him praying with the prophets of Baal and calling out prayers that are connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and a lot of these ancient prayers, now we see him as we see in verse 42, it says, so Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He assumes the posture of prayer. It's interesting. Why does the narrative give us the account of what he's doing in prayer? Notice that. It is funny. Commentators and theologians kind of think, well, maybe this is a common way of doing it. There's a lot of, you know, uh, disagreement and, and uh, a lot of discussion about why this posture. But what they do agree on is that this posture means he is moving from this calling out at this altar now to a deeply personal, quiet, humble posture where he's almost just sitting. It's not just necessarily some sort of strange thing. He sits in his head. You can almost just see it, almost like just exhausted maybe, low, and his head is between his knees in this incredible posture of humility because he's in a deep conversation. He's not just going up and throwing out a phrase or two of, Lord, we want it to rain. He's actually entering into a deep conversation with God. And I think it's really been convicting to me, as you know, to, for you to know, as, even as your pastor, somebody speaking, uh, that a lot of people think, you know, Oh, you know, how many hours do you pray? I don't know how much you think I pray a day. But, but you know, even just thinking about prayer for me and growing in, in the way that I talk to God, I think so many of my conversations day to day can be just short, little distracted conversations. And we're so used to that, even with God. I mean, if you think about even the confession moment we have in church is actually, it feels probably like five minutes to you. It was probably 20 seconds. Because most of the time that we spend in conversation, even with each other, I mean, think about the, the characters in a tweet. Think about the ways that we interact. There's such short little interactions. You know how it is. When you receive a text that goes beyond the screen, you're like, oh my gosh, I have to like sit and read this. Even that, you know, you're like, oh, I've got to scroll on my text. Just send me a short text. You know what I'm saying? It, it, our hearts really want that. But what we really need and when we really know we're known is when we have those deep conversations where we can move through material with people and we feel like we're not just talking news, sports, and weather, but we're getting into the material of our hearts. That's where he goes with this posture. A woman named Ruth Barton wrote a great book on leadership and 
in the book is embedded a bunch of different things, but the way she talks about leadership is that these leaders in the Bible that we see as leaders like Moses, Elijah, all these great names, David, when they spend time with God, they really spend time with him because they know, and I love how she put this, they know that their souls as our souls, and in order to get to that place, our souls are easily frightened and they need to be called out. Think about that language. Our souls are easily frightened and they need to be called out. We need to have our hearts positioned to have conversation with God and with, let's be honest, with others, but really with the Lord to where we know that we're actually talking with him. That almost forces us to have sometimes the uncomfortable moments of conversation where you kind of say, I don't know what to say anymore. Maybe even say that to God that he spends that time. And here's what I thought was really fascinating about what he prays and how personal it gets. Did you notice verse 41 going back up when he says, and Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink for there's a sound of rushing rain. And then he goes to pray. That's kind of a funny thing. And I think that actually is really key to this. He's saying, go on up, eat and drink. Now, when you encourage somebody to eat and drink, it was to move on. It meant, hey, it's time to get ready. You see that kind of language throughout the Old Testament of stand, someone would stand up from a posture and eat and drink. Now he was encouraging Ahab after this huge event, the contest at the altar to get up, eat and drink, get ready, here comes the rain. And yet he hasn't even prayed yet. You see the strange order of this? Why would Elijah, it's like he's calling his shot. It's like he's stepping up to the plate and he's holding his bat up. He's like, go ahead and eat and drink because this one's coming out. I'm going yard with this one. You know, I mean, it sounds strange, but what he's actually doing is beautiful because it's really interesting that what, what Elijah does is he's praying. He's not just calling a shot. He's not being arrogant. He actually, and notice, even his posture shows you that he's not praying in arrogance. In the first of this chapter, in 18 chapter one, it says, God says to Elijah, go show yourself to him being Ahab and I will bring rain. Now notice from that point, and he's already shown himself to Ahab, from that point on, the rain hasn't come yet. And what Elijah is doing is beginning to show that his prayer, his deeply personal heart is not connected to just throwing out, Lord, would you bring rain? But he's connecting it to the promises of God. I think one of the things that Elijah is teaching us is that we look often at the prophets and think, gosh, they, man, I wish I had a prayer life like that. I wish I could talk to God. But you know what he's doing is what James says in the New Testament about Elijah that he's just a man of the same nature as us. And what he's doing is he's connecting his prayers to the character of who God is. He's not calling his shot. He's saying, God, you have already called it. And God invites him in to speak about this thing, to bring him in on the work that he's about to do. So that Elijah is connecting to the promise. Now, look, the promises of God are his word. This is what he's spoken about. And, and this is what could really shape the way that we pray. And oftentimes, even if you ask that question, what do I pray? How do I pray? 
Elijah's not making up something. He's going back to what God has already said he, he's doing and who he is. Having God's words shape your prayers, to shape you, to shape your life. Going back to God's word, and this is why reading the word and praying are really important things. It's not just the things we do, right? Prayer becomes deeply personal when we start speaking with God about who he is. And how do we know who he is? By his word. By his scripture. And unpacking that. And looking that, amen, yes. Because prayer meets scripture. And this is what, one thing I learned from uh, um, some other theologians, what meditation is. Meditation, we actually do this often. Meditation is actually where scripture and prayer meet. And we meditate all the time. We actually meditate by anxiety and worry. We meditate on things we can control and focus on. Meditation is what we really focus on. But what meditation can help us do in the Bible is taking a passage, maybe even taking this passage today and taking it with you and praying through that passage. Something in the effect of, Lord, teach me how to be humble like Elijah. Teach me how to pray like him. And beginning to pray through a passage where your mind is sitting in it and you absorb who God is and you're speaking to God at the same time about his word, that's meditation. See, it's not the connecting to yourself, it's connecting to the Lord. That's the difference between uh, Eastern and Western meditation and scriptural meditation is connecting to other, it's him. It's speaking to him. And Elijah was doing something. And here's the thing that I, I wondered. I was like, what is he praying? Like, is he just sitting there? And Because notice, he has to ask his servant, now go look towards the sea. And he went and looked, and there was nothing. He had to do it a number of times. What does he pray? Is he just sitting there and just saying, Lord, let it rain. Lord, let it rain. Is he just saying that over and over and over? You know what Elijah is doing and presenting himself as? Is his in intercessor. He's putting himself in between God and the people. And he's actually, again, praying a prayer that, that the kings long ago who worshiped the Lord and sought him prayed. So right now, just as a reminder, Elijah as a prophet is in the time where the kingdom is divided and the kings of each of Israel and Judah are kind of like, eh, I don't know if I care so much about God. I don't know if he's kind of for me. I mean, he could be helpful here, but I don't know. Only if he gives me what I need here. Notice where prayer comes in there for that king. <clears throat> but what Elijah connects to is a prayer that Solomon, the great King Solomon, son of David, prayed this. He prayed this when he dedicated the temple in 1 Kings 8, the very beginning of this book. When heaven is shut up, and this is before Elijah is on the scene. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land. See, long before Elijah, Solomon was giving this prayer and Elijah knew it. It was in his head. And he's not just praying for rain, he's praying for their hearts. 
Because the things that we need practically, we're about to talk about in a minute, will not make sense if we don't know that the only one who can lift the curse off of us and the things that we need around us is the Lord himself. Remember when Jesus is in, this, in a certain home and his, these friends bring this, par- this paralyzed friend to Jesus and they have to like rip off the roof and they lower this friend down in front of Jesus. And they're hoping because they know that Jesus can make people walk. He can give people food. He can do things that other people have not done. And they recognize that. And instead of just saying, get up and take your mat and walk, he first says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's like, and don't you know the guy on the mat was like sitting there going, okay, that's great. Do we go to all this trouble for that? I mean, is God practical? But what does he say? But so that you know that I can do the harder thing. He says, get up, take your mat and walk. Now, what is he doing? When Jesus says that, he gets up and he goes and the whole crowd is amazed. But what happens is the teachers, the Pharisees around him start getting really upset because this guy said, not only take up your mat and walk, but your sins are forgiven. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, I'm addressing both your external needs, but I'm also the one who can lift the deepest, most profound internal one. I'm the one who addresses both the sin within you and the basic need that you want to have the normal ability to walk, to run, to feel the grass beneath your feet. And yet he addresses sin. And what does Jesus do? Because he's able to say, I'm doing the, because I can do the more difficult thing. And what's the most difficult thing? It's that he forgives sin. That he's addressing all those needs from the inside out. Personal. Prayer is deeply personal because it drives to the heart of what we really need. And it lets us look to God who can hit things that, yes, we need certain things on day to day, but addresses the the further need of our hearts. And that's how prayer isn't just merely personal. It works out inward out to the practical. It hits what we really need. Look, I love reading books and articles, particularly on organizing my day. I don't know if you like those kind of things. Uh, there are actually a lot of books out now about that, Design Your Day, those kind of things, where, where you kind of have your ability to be more effective. If anything, our culture is a very pragmatic, get it in a row culture, right? And I think that's where a lot of us, where that, okay, where does pr- prayer come into to conflict with all of the needs of people around us? The case for thoughts and prayer. Because that's great. Is it a phrase or are we really moving to action? Or is prayer over here and and not over here? There was actually an Atlantic article that uh, someone from Christianity Today, an editor, wrote in. And they said this. They said, whatever your beliefs are about God, a sincere appeal to thoughts and prayer in moments of crisis is not an indulgent retreat from reality, 
but a responsible reaction to it. In other words, when we pray, it doesn't just affect us. We don't just say we're praying. When we pray, we're actually A, in activity, and then B, have to move outward from it. Otherwise, like the comedian, well-known atheist, Ricky Gervais says, when we use that phrase, I pray for you, it equals, as he says, I want some credit for caring without actually having to do anything that takes any effort that actually works. And that's what many see. But what prayer does is if we go in prayer, it evokes the deepest part of us to address the deepest needs. It recalibrates our hearts and our minds. Paul Miller, uh, who wrote a great, if you want some good books, he can give you some good books on prayer articles and such. But one of the best ones I've read is by a guy named Paul Miller. Um, and he wrote uh, a book called A Praying Life. And he said this about it. And I love what he says prayer is. And this is like the, such a good capture of prayer. Learning to pray doesn't offer you a less busy life. It offers you a less busy heart. Now hear this. Learning to pray doesn't offer you a less busy life. It offers you a less busy heart. And I think this is a really huge thing that he's saying. Because prayer, and especially from what we see here, why does the repetition of going back over, do you notice that in this passage? That it's not just like, he bows humbly and prays and there's rain. It takes seven times of this servant going and looking for him to come back. And when Paul Miller is saying it offers you a less busy heart, not just a less busy schedule or life, I think often we pray to make our life work better. We hope that when we pray, it's just gonna make our life work better or easier, or we are too busy to pray. <laughs> we gotta get going, I don't have time. But what we're doing when we come to God in that way is we're, we're giving our needs to him, we're practically coming to God and asking him to, to see our needs. This is why, and I love this, this is why the servant goes over and over seven times. Can you imagine Elijah praying? And after the second, the third, the fourth, he, the guy keeps coming back and saying, there's no rain. He just keeps praying. And that's where many of us, and, and me included, would be like, well, it's not gonna happen. I mean, I, I love that it sees it even describes in the passage the rain coming as a little rain cloud in the distance, almost like the size of a fist in the, in the distance. And that's how they would interpret the rain. I mean, talk about being a weatherman then is the same now. I don't know if any of you are connected to the weather here, but like what, it's still the best job in the world where you can be, it's like a 50, I'm 50% right, 50% wrong. Is it gonna rain today? I don't know. And you can still keep your job and do great at it. It's the same thing. I mean, these people, they would just run and they'd see, and there's a cloud, there's a cloud forming. I don't know. Seven times they're coming back. And how disheartening could that be to interpret that? And yet, what is he praying for? Rain. 
He's praying for one of the most basic needs. And here's why. For two and a half years, they had a drought. Can you imagine? I mean, we've had a lot of heat here for about a week, maybe two weeks. And some of the grass, you see a lot of the grass is brown and patchy. Imagine that not just for a season of a drought. Now that has happened, but two and a half years of no rain. It's not just the grass you lose, it's all your food. It's all dusty, parched, things that survive on water. Where do they draw it from? They have to go to to certain seas. They have to boil it. They have to make it clean. They have to... Think about the ways that that practically impacts everything around them, including Elijah. And yet this is what Elijah is asking for. Imagine the frustration of him. Lord, please, please let it rain. Forgive the hearts of our people. Through even this and show your mercy even through this rain. And you know what he's praying for? He's not just praying for those people who follow him, but even he's praying for those who don't, like King Ahab. Like you too in one of their great songs, City of Blinding Lights. Prayers and blessings for not only the ones who kneel, the common grace that he's praying over, even the people who don't believe. This is why Jesus said, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous in the New Testament. The practical needs of coming and the repetition of doing it over and over and over. It's just like in Luke chapter 18 of the parable of the persistent widow, the one who comes back because we know that we can lose heart when we talk and we don't see anything. Over and over. I, I, I really want to get to that moment of, okay, we don't know how long the time was between each time of repetition of the servant jumping up and running to the window and saying, still no rain, don't see anything. But we know that opportunity of like, what, what good are my prayers? The question, after one time of praying and not hearing anything, of where's our heart in that? Practically, is that we, we don't wanna lose, this is why Jesus gives this parable of the persistent widow who comes back to a king over and over again to grant her this. And then finishes the parable by saying, and God isn't a begrudging king, but a loving father. How much does he want us to bring our needs to him over and over and over and not think that we're being needy? It's one of the things Paul Miller draws out again in his book is to say, we need to learn to be more needy from God. That it's okay to be children and ask from the needs of him. And as John Calvin said, believers do not pray with the view of informing God of things he doesn't know or exciting him to do his duty. They pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that it draws our hearts as loving, dependent children to him. That's what repetition is. It's not to, to just go back over and over and to just say mindless things. It's to draw in that conversation with the Lord. Because it's a practical mystery. 
It's a deep practical mystery. As I read from Tim Keller, John uh, J.I. Packer, other great thinkers and writers, that there are two things that I captured from reading a lot of these just to remind and inform my heart that I want to practically give to you. One is we need to learn to argue with God more. Now, what they meant first by that was not to argue with him like, nuh-uh, <laughs> you're wrong. But actually come to him from the Bible with theological conversation and argument and discussion by thinking. So what we often do is we'll come with a list. We'll say, Lord, we really want you to do this, 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 this. And we move on so quickly from each of those things instead of stopping and unpacking what we really need from the Lord. Very practical, basic things. This is why, what is a part of the uh, Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. That's in the prayer. Because we ask for the things that we need, basically. And we ask those things over and over, but not in a list, but engaging our minds to argue even with God, as they said, to bring thoughtful conversation, not to inform God, but to bring our hearts to him and say, Lord, would you do this? And then secondly, to make our needs known. To make our needs known. I, I, we all know the song. I'm sure you've thought it maybe once during this sermon. One of God's greatest gifts is unanswered prayers. Garth Brooks, please tell me you've thought this song. Now, I love Garth and I love that song, but it's not exactly what's being said here. Sorry, Garth. Even God, this is what we need to remember. Even God's no to something is still an answer in his relationship to us. There is nothing my children hate more than my no to them. I mean, I, they hear it all the time. None of us like no. None of us do. This is why I was just talking to somebody the other day. They were like, we're having a yes day in our house. Everything's yes. I was like, that's amazing. How do you pull that off? Um, that's incredible. But what does no mean? It doesn't mean I'm not in relationship to my children. In some ways, it may mean I'm more in it because of the wisdom and care I want for them, even though it's difficult. Look, there's a table in front of me that points to some of the most deep and personal and practical things that we're talking about here. This shows something that Jesus himself heard from the Lord himself, his father, the one that we think he's, and he is, he, unlike any of us closest to his father, heard no. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus asked his father, Lord, is there any other way? Could this cup pass for me? Do I, do I really need to go through with this? And in that moment, he heard no. You must do this. Prayer isn't just about our yeses and nos. It's about the one who took up something so personal. This is the most personal table that we can ever come to because it, it deals with Jesus' body and blood. Because the heavenly father said yes, said no to Jesus and yes to what he had to do, 
we get to taste the most personal element of anything we'll ever know. And it's so deeply, deeply practical because what? You have to come consume it. You have to eat it. It's a table. We come up, we're considered family. Like tables, you eat from it. It's deeply personal and deeply practical because it transforms you in that way. It goes to the deepest parts of your heart to go to the widest parts of this world. And that's how God works. That's what prayer does. That's why it's active. And that's why prayer is not just a phrase, but it's our relationship. So even in a minute, you're gonna have a moment of quiet before you come to this table to take of it. It's actually a time for you to pray. And even if you don't know what to say, I would actually encourage you to say that. Come to him honest. Come to him personal. Come to him saying, Lord, I don't even know if I should, is it okay for me to take at this table? But know that the personal and deep practical side is God acted so that he could come nearest to you in the Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's stand.